0: In ancient Rome, the gladiators went into the arena with these words on their lips. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. The windows of the world are covered with rain. Where is the sunshine we once knew? To grow straight and tall, let the sun shine through. Today, all of you young athletes are in the arena. Many of you will win. But even more important, I know you will be brave and bring credit to your parents and to your country. Let us begin the Olympics. Thank you.
1: Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who in 1968 founded the Special Olympics World Games. This extraordinary movement, which affects the lives of people all over the world, had in fact quite modest beginnings. Her husband, Sergeant Shriver, chairman of the board of the Special Olympics, remembers the early days back in 1963.
2: I want you to know something. I was there when she first started. Mm-hmm. I would come home from where I was working, and then I'd find her out in a big backyard, which we had, with three or four people, and they were all working together. And then the next weekend I'd come home, and there were 20. The next weekend, 40. The next weekend, 80. I kept saying to her, Eunice, what's going on here? What are you doing with these people? And when I say what I said just then, the reality is there was no such program or activity anywhere on Earth. It's hard to believe. I think it's hard maybe for you to believe. It's hard for me to believe. But I can tell you something. I was there, and I know what did not exist, and I knew what was being brought into existence. Well, to summarize the story, it went right there from the backyard at our house to the first big entity we had, which was uh, staged out in uh, Illinois mm-hmm. because at that time we were living out there. And nobody can hardly believe it because I think something like seven or 800 people came to that place in the center, to something says center of the uh, USA. And I can remember riding down with my wife and a couple of other people in an automobile on the way to this event. We were all laughing and talking about this event, of which there had never been such an event. And somebody said, well, what are we going to call it? Nobody, nobody knew what to call it. And somebody said, well, why don't we just call it Olympics? It's like the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Somebody else said, you can't do that. That's an official name. Mm-hmm. You know, That's the Olympic movement. Mm-hmm. You can't just call it that. Yeah. Somebody said, well, that's true. You can't call it that. But these are all special people. Why don't we just call it Special Olympics? And everybody in the automobile, there were five of us in there. They all laughed. (laughs) That's a great idea. Special Olympics. Everybody said, well, what's the matter with that? And nobody said, I don't know if there's anything the matter with it. Is anybody going to be angry at the Olympic movement? I said, we don't know. And this was about 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. We all got out of the automobile, and we all went out there to start the event we all talked to each other said, what are we going to call this? And we all said, well, this is the Special Olympics. And everybody laughed and roared with joy. And that was it.
1: The Special Olympics movement had begun. A thousand athletes from the United States and Canada took part in the first Games at Chicago's Soldier Field in 1968. Today, athletes from all over the world participate in the programme. The Games are about people of all ages who suffer from a learning disorder. But what exactly is a learning disorder? Dr Tim Shriver is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Special Olympics.
3: Well, the idea of a learning disorder is actually a relatively new one. It's really just over 100 years old. The whole concept of cognitive delay or intellectual disability or, in the old days, mental retardation was created around the time that IQ tests came into being, shortly after the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and scientists came to test and discover that there was a certain select group of people who, for either genetic or other environmental uh, abnormalities, consistently tested at the lowest end of the intellectual or the intelligent spectrum. So the idea of classification came about with these tests, and people started to say, well, those that score in the scientific jargon more than two standard deviations below the mean, and, you know, it's all very arcane ideas, Uh, would be classified as persons with mental disability or mental retardation. And then there were further classifications within that group. But uh, in the end of the day, the way we think of it today is that there are some people who learn more slowly than others, uh, who have many gifts, who have many skills, many competencies, sometimes wise, sometimes artistic, sometimes gifted athletically. Uh, But we are looking for those who are challenged by learning tasks but who through sport can show their other gifts.
1: Well, how common is learning disability? What proportion of the population would have a learning difficulty?
3: The statistics vary a little bit, but the best statistics we have been able to come up with suggest that somewhere between 25 and 3.5% of the world's population has this level of disability. Uh, Depending on how you count, that brings you to somewhere between 150 and 200 million people. So our statistics suggest that there are about somewhere around 175 million people with a learning disability. It's the largest disability in the world by a factor of somewhere between 8 and 10, next closest being some form of partial uh, visual disability. So we are the largest disability in the world. We are common across all uh, ethnic, geographic, religious, uh, and cultural groups. Uh, we know no boundaries of, uh, of geography or religion or, uh, or, uh, or economic class. Um, and yet, people tend to be shocked when they hear that prevalence statistic because we're the most hidden, tragically, the most hidden disability group. Uh, in so many communities, our, uh, our constituency is still kept in the home, if not in the home, in the institution, if not in the institution and neglected in in still more painful ways uh, that are almost subhuman. So people are shocked by the number of the disability, and that shock in in and of itself is a tragedy because it reveals the continuing prejudice against our population around the world.
1: Now, would you say that modern life is more difficult for somebody with such a disability than life was in the past?
3: Well, uh, I wouldn't, no. I'd say that medical advances, and in broad terms, improvements in social attitudes have made life better, Uh, certainly over the last hundred years. There's a lot of stories, wonderful stories, you know, about traditional cultures where people with disabilities were venerated. So one doesn't know with three, four, five hundred years ago uh, or thousands of years ago the status all the time of this population. We're not sure. We know of no civilization that in any way we uh, are aware Uh, was particularly accepting on its own terms. But we hear uh, oral histories that suggest that certain communities the status was quite high and venerated, or at least respected. But the the more likely scenario is that for millions of years, this population's been treated as, through superstition or religious belief or uh, social, cultural belief, as uh, being uh, scorned and rejected. So I think that We've, uh, great advances in medical care over the last 50 years, uh, great advances in treatment uh, suggest that life is better now. Is it good? No, it's not good. Is Are there still examples of the most inhumane treatment imaginable today? Yes, there are. Uh, so the painful backdrop of life for this population remains very much a part of the environment in which our movement operates. Uh, But I would have to side with those who say that life is improving.
1: Great progress has been made, and things are different nowadays. But the documentary film, Profoundly Normal, gives a vivid impression of how things used to be not all that long ago. The film depicts the lives of two people, Ricardo and Donna Thornton, who grew up with learning disabilities during the 1980s they faced appalling difficulties. The premiere of the film was held at the Martin Luther King Memorial Library in Washington last February.
3: We are here in this wonderful community setting, uh, not the kind of place where typically one finds Hollywood celebrities and glamour. But it is fitting that we are here in this centre of community, in this centre of the city, in this place of employment for people with developmental disabilities, in this place where people come to learn, because we are here for an historic occasion, for the airing, as far as I know, of a film that for the first time tells a story that has never been told. But that won't happen anymore, and there are many people to thank for tonight, but the people we really must thank the most are Ricardo and Donna.
1: As a young child, Ricardo was placed in an institution for developmentally impaired people, and it was there that he met and fell in love with Donna. They wanted to get married. The people running the institution, however, had other ideas, and every obstacle was put in the way of the young couple. But they were a strong-minded pair. By breaking the rules, and against all the odds, Ricardo and Donna managed to get married.
4: Well, I'm a former resident of an institution, and many years ago I lived, many years ago, at Forest Haven, was an institution that had many people with different types of disabilities and I had to grow up in that environment. I spent all my young life to adulthood in the institution. It's like I committed a crime. I'm doing time for a crime I never committed. That's my brother right there, William. He's my oldest brother who was in the institution. My oldest sister was in the institution, who died in the institution. Um, That's the sad part. None of them knew who we were. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. It took us a while to get to find out who we were, and we were family. Well, where did you um, meet Donna first? I met her at Forest Haven. She had a little, she had a nice little... Um, <laughs> she had a boyfriend that she had just let um and I was just hoping to get my chance to slide in there. And she used to work at McDonald's. She was very hot on french fries.
1: And you hit it off immediately, did you?
4: Well, I, it took a while. I had to wait till we both got out of the institution and then go out for a date. And then Donna got an apartment. And when she got her apartment, that's when she proposed to me. I try to be just a natural man, a handsome man. (laughs) But the people that the government didn't like that. See, I was really doing a lot of things to break those barriers that we can do some things if we're given an opportunity. But the government didn't like to see that kind of stuff. And we wanted to get married and show them that we have love for one another and feelings. And that was a little hard for the government to accept. Are any of them
1: here tonight, those people that... (laughs) that were to let you get married are they here tonight?
4: I hope they come tonight with uh, open hearts and uh, hope that their minds has changed that they can open up to others that want to get married and you have a son uh, Ricardo haven't you? yeah I have a little boy he's I can call him little Ricky and um he was a 2 pound 11 ounce baby Mm, And there was was a lot of concerns about me being around then.
1: Your son hasn't got a learning disability like you had. No. Um, Now, is is his life much easier than yours was?
4: It's challenging. It's Mm. challenging because we're talking about two individuals with a disability. Who uh, is raising a, a son? who has no disability, and I try to be as normal as possible in his growth. And I know it, and I explain to. We talk. And he loves his mom to death. My wife loves him even more. She's. I'm the I'm more, and I'm the disciplined one. My wife is the sweet one. One of us had to give up our role, so I decided to be the one to be disciplined and mean, and my wife is sweet, love and. Compassion, tough feel isn't it? <laughs> well, you have a sense of humor, Ricardo. <laughs> oh, I love it. I gotta have it. I love it. I love it. That's what's keeping me going, so I won't look back at the pain behind, you know, my disability. Because it's something that it's education that's needed. It's what I found out.
1: Ricardo and Donna, may owe their triumph over adversity to the Special Olympics movement. They were Special Olympics athletes, and their experiences in the sports field gave them confidence and raised their self esteem. Everybody needs self esteem, and for Uni Shriver, that is at the core of what the Special Olympics movement is all about.
0: Well, if you come from a family uh, of several children and you have a special child in your family, uh, the other children may be doing extraordinarily well at school and play and all sorts of things and they come home at night and they're talking about medals and ribbons and all sorts of things but the special child maybe went and watched them then came home and watched television so he sits at the table and he has no doesn't appear to have any competency and it was a tremendous uh, uh, departure i think from the two groups so uh, uh the fact that that they could do sports, and I'm very aware that they could do sports since I grew up in in an atmosphere in which uh, special children were allowed to do sports. So that program was started, and and the idea was that they would be competent in this field so that at night when they came to the table, they could say, I want a medal, I want a ribbon, and they do that very vigorously and happily and with a great deal of competence.
1: So there are extraordinary benefits in terms of self-esteem and achievement and well-being and so forth for somebody who indulges in sport.
0: Exactly. And carries over to a lot of other things. So when they go to school, they have more confidence in their ability. Or when they go out uh, with their parents and they go to a uh, restaurant and uh, they're going to sit there with their arms folded and their legs like this and their head down. Or they can go in there and they just want a medal. So talk to me.
1: Well, is there any evidence that it actually helps the disability itself if you are very fit?
0: And well, I think so, because I think school is a very good example, and we have a lot of uh, examples of people going to school and, and, and the teacher finding out they are in Special Olympics, and then they have, as I say, this new confidence that they can learn before they were staying in maybe at the third grade. Were they ever going to go up to the fifth grade? Possibly No. Now they're in the third grade, and the growth pattern brings them up to the fifth grade in many cases. And they didn't have the confidence that they could read another story or they could take on more difficult tasks, say, in mathematics. They, they, they can and do, and that's the, the pride of the, the, the youngster himself or herself. But the, the real uh, development of this program and the, the, the largeness of it, it really has come in the last seven years with uh, my son Timmy running it and organizing it and, and adding a lot of different elements to it so that now it's become a forceful issue in, in nations all over the world. And how big has the movement got? Well, we know we have uh, a million athletes now and we have many, many volunteers and we have many new family members. It's a program that my son started uh, two or three years ago, in which family members become the architects in local communities. I've been to a number of countries myself, and you go in and you go to a school and you ask the special, uh, where the special children are, and either they're not there, they're home, uh, even though they may be 14 or 15, uh, uh, and their parents are nowhere to be seen. But to get the parents to sit down and say, yes, I'm going to agitate for these children. I'm going to form committees and and go down to my local uh, legislator or whatever and start a program. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to get my own children who are in higher grades to be volunteers. I'm going to enlist our whole family, and we're going to make sure that we can have these games right here in this neighborhood. Uh, It's necessary to recognize that people who are special have contributions to make. They may not be able to get into Harvard. True. I can't go to Harvard uh, Architectural School myself without some kind of tutoring. Uh, So they uh, have some kind of difficulties, but the point is they have a lot of other things to give. They have great enthusiasm. They have great joy. They have great companionship. They adored having friends because they believe strongly in friendships in their community. So they're a contribution, and that's what we have to get across to everybody, that this is a contribution to your country. It elevates the whole nation. It does you no good to keep them down and behind everybody else. Lift up, lift up. And that's the message of Special Olympics. Everybody's got to get behind that.
1: The movement is a worldwide one, attracting athletes from 150 countries. Up to now, the Games have always been held in North America. This year, they are being staged elsewhere for the first time. On Midsummer's Day, 21st of June, Croke Park will be the venue for the opening ceremony of the 11th Special Olympics World Summer Games, the largest sporting event in the world this year.
5: Fleischmann Hillard Saunders, good afternoon. Bear with me one moment, I'll just direct your call.
1: Julian Davis of Fleischmann Hillard Saunders is one of the communications partners for the Special Olympics. I asked Julian whether Ireland managed to secure the Games on merit or if we got them through our connections with the Kennedys.
6: Very much on merit. It came down to ourselves and uh, Argentina. Uh, Argentina had some superb facilities and infrastructure, But when the team came to assess both countries, when they came here, what they saw was really a country and a people who really wanted to host the Games. Ireland had a very strong Special Olympics Ireland programme over many years. They had a strong families programme, a strong volunteer programme. And when they came here, they saw some excellent facilities, but what they really saw was a passion for wanting the Games to be here. And and that uh, really has been borne out. Well, who in Ireland thought of the Games first, of presenting Ireland as a possible venue for these Games? Well, the way that it really happened was uh, in the mid-90s, the Special Olympics had really uh, flourished throughout the, the world. There was over 160 programmes taking part. And Special Olympics in Washington began to say, listen, we need to take these Games outside uh, the United States to, to, to show this uh, growth. And they said if there was a country who wanted to take part, who wanted to bid for it, they could and they would accept bids. Um, after nineteen ninety five, and they would look at two thousand and three being the first opportunity to do that, and we were at we were out at the nineteen eighty five games, and um, it was kind of strange the way it happened. Um, one of the people who were who, is, who had a had a daughter taking part in the game was Fergus Finlay, who at the time was program manager in the uh, to Dick Spring in the in the government. And we had been talking with him and we had been kind of saying it would be great to hold a World Games in Ireland in in Dublin. And he said, do you think it was possible? And we said, well, we think it's worth trying for. And really, he said, come and see me when we get back. And we did. And we got talking to him. And then through all that process, an interdepartmental um, uh, feasibility group was set up, uh, chaired by Julie O'Neill. And they came back and uh, made a recommendation. Yes, we think Ireland uh, could do it. We think there are benefits for the country we think the, the 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 finance could be put in place and we should go, we should we should go for it and then the government put up some uh, money to prepare a bid document and that took a year and then they supported when the bid document was ready to go in the government uh, submitted the bid and put up 5 million pounds at the time as a as a as a gesture of support for the bid so we went in with a very strong bid and when was that that was that was ago. 1997 And then eventually in March 1999, after endless meetings and documents and visits here, in March 1999 it was announced that Ireland had been given the Games.
1: When the Games begin, 7,000 athletes will compete in 21 events, ranging from table tennis to golf. All but one of which will be held in the Greater Dublin area.
6: How will we cater for such numbers, and will we measure up to our American cousins? Coming here in June, there will be 7,000 athletes from about 100 and, between 150 and 160 uh, delegations. There will be 2,000 coaches and then 1,000 uh, um, delegates as well. So all in all, 10,000. And then that's not to say all the other supporters that will be coming as well, and it's reckoned that anywhere up to 20,000 supporters will be coming uh, with the team as well.
1: So you have an enormous logistical military operation to try and cope with that. Well, it is a bit of a
6: military operation. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of the accommodation, in terms of the transport. One of the one of the great differences between you know you talk about the differences between the games in the states and the games here. In the Games in the States, traditionally they were able to house people in uh, accommodation, say one university, and you could actually accommodate 10,000 people on one campus. We don't have that facility here. So in terms of our accommodation, we have to spread them out over um, 20 different uh, sites. And that's a big logistical issue because you you then have a big uh, transport issue. Uh, logistical issue out of that because you've got to get them from the accommodation to the accommodation sites and that, that poses its own problem. So that's probably the biggest difference that people will see between uh, games in the states and the games here but other than that the facilities are going to be exactly the same the officialling will be superb all that side of it is going to be uh, outstanding but how many buses are
1: you going to need to do
6: this there's 300 uh, uh buses that have been engaged um for the games a kind of an independent transport system has, has, has had to be put in place and that will augment the public transport system so yeah it's a big that the transport system is uh, something that will be a big challenge but nevertheless they've they've done a lot of testing of it they've uh, They've uh, put a lot of work into it, and every you know people are quite confident that it's going to be uh, it's going to work. Did anyone calculate how many lunches are going to be eaten? Well, if you take it that uh, we're going to have thirty thousand volunteers working at the games, and they all have to have lunch, and the competitors all have to have lunch, you're talking somewhere around um, between twenty-five and thirty thousand lunches a day. Oh my God. So oh. and somebody has to make. There's more volunteers have to make those. So there's a huge, uh, there's a huge issue around that. Well, how many full-time staff are looking after all those volunteers? A, by the way? Well, at the moment, uh, on the Games Organising Committee, there are 190 full-time staff, and they're augmented then by 3,000 volunteer, effectively full-time volunteers, people who come in every day and give their time. They come in the evenings or they come in on the weekends, or and uh, it's supported by that. So there's a huge. Um, workforce uh, on it uh, at the moment. Now you have athletes and teams from all over the world many of them won't speak any English or indeed any European language. How are you coping with this linguistic problem? Which presents its own uh, unique challenge because it's estimated that there'll be 52 different languages and that's that's obviously a big issue. Not only are there people who possibly be travelling for the very first time and they will have a learning disability but they're going to be coming into a a whole new culture, a whole new language. So it's absolutely uh, imperative that we do our very best to make sure that we provide all the language facilities so that they compete at their, at their very best. And all we, what we've done is we've gone out and we've asked uh, for volunteers and they've come forward, and even the most remote languages, languages I have to say that I hadn't even heard of, Tagalog and all sorts of mm. languages have been serviced, and they will be serviced. And, Are there uh, people in Ireland now that speak practically every language? Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how multicultural we've come in terms of finding languages of people. And then the other interesting thing is that we've had a, quite a, a number of volunteers from abroad who've also said they'll come in. And then we've had the embassies supporting us. And uh, so, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And um, we'll, we're going to be able to service those languages.
1: Could I ask you about the difficult question of cost? This must be an enormously
6: expensive operation. Uh, now, who is financing it, or who has put money up so far? Well, the, the cost of the games are €36 million Euro in cash and then €20 million Euro in kind. They're, that's products and services that people have given um, to the games. So all in all, it's €56 million. And happily, we're close now to having all that raised in plenty of time before the games how the money was raised was really through a number of sources. First of all, public money, which was the, 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 uh, the government, uh, the Northern Ireland office, um, the Ireland funds, um, and the European Union. And then behind that, the next layer was commercial sponsorship, and we put together a whole package of different layers of sponsor, Bank of Ireland being the premier sponsors, and then there's six other sponsors on Post, Aer Lingus, Toyota, Aircom, O'Brien Sandwich Bars and of course RTE. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another layer of 22 official suppliers and they've also provided either cash or in-kind services. And then the next layer of uh, fundraising has been through fundraising projects which is like the support and Athlete Programme which RTE have supported um, and that raised uh, you know considerable money. And then after that then there are various donations, are private donations that people have given. So Happily, uh, the games are financially secure.
7: There's lots of venues now. I mean, at, at that stage, Crow Park um, that was only in the foundations for the Holden Stand and the Canal End back in 1999. That's finished and opened uh, back in March. Uh, that will be for the opening and closing event, 80,000 people capacity now for World TV. Uh, the Aquatic Centre was opened in, in March in Abbottstown. Uh, this is probably. Um, By those who know, not me, a bit biased on that place, but um, they tell me it's in in the top three uh, aquatic centres in the world. And all of the other facilities that have been lined up, all of the colleges, all of the accommodation, um, all of the third level accommodation will be available for the weeks in it. So it's been a huge logistics um, exercise. and um, I think I have the same view as everybody else. I just look forward to, to, to Midsummer's Night and the participation in what will be the biggest sporting event in the world in 2003 and the biggest event that we've ever done in this country.
1: 30,000 volunteers have been recruited and the name of Antísoc, Bertie Ahern, appears at the top of the list. It's fair to say that without the support of the government and the personal commitment of Antísoc, Ireland's bid for the Games might not have been successful. Did the should see the Games as mainly an opportunity to promote Ireland?
7: Well, no, that's not the number one, one, one reason. I, I, I think um, the people who participate in the Special Olympics down through the ages uh, have been really you know special people. Uh, and I think it is the, uh, the example of, of people being able to get over uh, things that other people have and being able to participate in a way that they would love to do in the normal sense of the world. And I think that's the really special thing about it. I mean, to see the events, uh, to see the swimming or the running or uh, any of the events, I mean, it's the, the effort, you know, the weightlifting event. I mean, and it's that sense of achievement, I think. In, and, and I kind of feel in an age where you watch people who get 50,000 a week for, for playing 90 minutes of football or... Um, you know, who can make extraordinary amounts of money for a golfing weekend or whatever? I mean, I admire all those people. And I think it's it's great. It's a career, yeah, but if you see the sense of achievement and success in the faces of the participants the Special Olympic, that does more from me than that. Uh, and, and I think that's what's special about it. And I think for their families, I mean, the, the sense of of togetherness that is brought. Uh, by people in the Special Olympics. You know, it's the communities that will host their towns. Uh, it's the, the training, the discipline of the training, uh, the participation, not only the medals representing your country. Uh, and at an age where we see it's hard enough to get people to represent their country because they're tied up with their affiliate sports, uh, here's a case where it's not like that. It, it, this, is, this is as its name dictates special. Uh, and I guarantee that anyone who will see any of the events uh, will understand the meaning of that at the end of it like they never had before. I would not have understood it if I had not been involved with the families, uh, people who have one difficulty or another in their life, uh, but are able to go out into the Special Olympics and really see what, what fun is, what endeavour is, what participation is. Uh, they have a sense of celebration that I think nobody in sport can have. The games
1: are about the people who take part. There are team events such as football and individual disciplines like gymnastics.
7: Um
0: cousin mm-hmm. Arkham Court.
1: And who do
4: you live with?
0: A mum, and dad.
4: And have you got brothers and sisters?
0: No, I don't.
4: Okay, cousins. Cousins. So you're the only child. Yes. You must be spoiled
7: rotten. <laughs> Not <much of> that.
4: <laughs> How many days a week do you train? Three. Have you won medals before? Yes. How many medals have you got at home?
7: Eleven.
4: Eleven medals, all for gymnastics.
7: Yeah. Those.
4: That's almost one medal for every year of your life. Yeah. When are you going to get your twelfth medal? Um. In the Special Olympics World Summer Games.
7: Yes. Deal.
4: Deal. i have to shake your hand. Hand shook.
1: Twelve-year-old Jack Keneally is a gymnast. This will be his first Olympic Games and a proud occasion for his mother,
4: Evelyn. So, Evelyn, tell me, how important is the Special Olympics in your family's life?
5: Well, I suppose it's it's, um, changed all our lives, really. And uh, Jack just began training four years ago. And um, we didn't know anything about Special Olympics. Um, He became a member of Bayside Gymnastics Club in uh, Rohini. And um, out of that came the uh, Leinster Games and then the National Games last year. So the coaches um, have been absolutely wonderful. And um, it's, it's really a great commitment on everybody's... You know, for for you know, they, they come along and it's they don't get paid for. No, they give so give, much time. They give so much time. So um, I I think too it it's it's just been an amazing um, Jack's activity has touched so many people and um, it has opened up the whole area of disability and um, yes. you, you know created a great awareness. Um,
4: Are you very proud of
5: him now? Oh, I am absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, to be an Olympic at um athlete at twelve is is brilliant, yeah. Thank you, Bob. We are very proud of him, yeah. Yeah. Well it's it's like a dream come true really. Um we were just very, very lucky um, I don't forget what, that his name came out of the it was a lotto yeah. and um you know, that that was just we were very, very shocked and surprised when we came back from holidays last year and um for some reason he, he it was his lucky day. So um that's been wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And you're
6: looking forward to
5: it? Really looking forward to it, yeah. for the Combined 100 metre hurdles Division 1, representing the People's Republic of China,
2: Ying Minhu.
1: It is a great honour for Ireland to host these games. And it's an even greater achievement for the athletes who will compete in them. But the games are not just about winning.
3: Well, uh, I I wouldn't say it's not focused on competition. It's focused on a definition of competition that's a little different. Uh, Our athletes are very competitive. They train very hard. They work very hard at their skills, and they want to win. There's no question about that. Our belief is that the best model of competition is competition against people of comparable ability, Uh, that the goal of competition is not to find out who's better than you. The goal of competition is to find out if you can compete against someone of your ability and win. So can you do your best? As one mother said to me years ago, the only definition of excellence is your best. Uh, And so we believe that uh, every athlete that will come to Ireland, not to mention every athlete that participates in a local event, is out to win. Uh, There's no question about that. This is a sports movement. Uh, The difference is that we're not out to find a way to eliminate them. We're not out to get them to a point where we can show that they're not as good as the next person. We are not interested in the elite athlete. We are interested in athletes who do their best, not in the best athlete. So it's competition. It's sports. It's the best in sports from our point of view. Uh, Those people that spend their lives trying to find the best athletes are a little confused by it. They think, well, wait a minute. Where is your fastest 100-meter runner? Where is your best footballer? They won't find that statistic with us. They'll only find the statistic that says that this young man or this young woman or this older man or this older woman has now won a gold medal because they've done their best and defeated those of comparable ability.
1: An idea occurs to me that the games are partially about the people who aren't classified as having a disability. You have to try and change hearts and minds. You are evangelists.
3: Well, I think, uh, I was just listening to my mother, I think really it starts at the most basic level. Uh, And I think the family dinner table is the beginning. Uh, And if you hear the stories of what happens in Special Olympics, it begins with a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter coming home and being proud of themselves. And what happens there is that the two or three people at the table, if they're lucky, or five or six, or if it's an Irish family, ten or (laughs) twelve, all look at that child, that brother, that sister, that son, that daughter, that cousin differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like to say we are committed to growing this movement one athlete at a time and one attitude at a time. Because it is true that the revolution that takes place is not only for the athlete, it is for those who see that athlete in a new way. So uh, our commitment is to making sure that this message is heard and seen and understood uh, by people who watch television, by people who come to the stands to cheer, by people who volunteer themselves to help at a games, by people who volunteer to participate on a team because we have unified sports, of course, it will be showcased in Ireland and several sports where you have athletes with and without disabilities competing together. There you have the penultimate relationship. It's not helper to beneficiary. It's teammate. It's colleagues. It's friends. Uh, these are the relationships we hope this movement builds uh, with, uh, for those who do not have disabilities, as I say, one attitude at a time around the world.
1: After three years of preparation, and with just 17 days to go to the opening ceremony, how does the Chief Executive of Special Olympics Ireland, Mary Davis,
8: feel about the project? In the beginning, three years ago, it was a very, very daunting task for all of us, for the board of directors, for our chairman, Dennis O'Brien, for every single one of us. But as time went on and as we launched all the various programmes, the first programme we launched was the Host Town programme and trying to secure 177 towns right across the island of Ireland. We thought, oh my goodness, how on earth are we going to do that? And yet... The people just got behind us so much, the towns, the communities, we got all the forms in, we got everything sorted in a much shorter space of time than we ever, ever imagined. And before we knew who we were, we had all the, the towns, we had all the committees in place and we had people working right around the island of Ireland in 177 communities preparing for the Games over two years out. The next big program was the families program that we launched then to get the two thousand families here in Dublin in the Dublin area to host um, families that would be coming in and who otherwise probably couldn't afford to come to the games mm-hmm. to provide complimentary bed and breakfast. And again, within a very very short space of time, we had all of those families ready and. Uh, getting their training and everything and then the big programme was the volunteer programme to recruit 30,000 volunteers we thought where are we going to start this one and how are we going to recruit them, find them screen them all, train them all and have them all ready and set so that they knew what they were about in June and we're there or thereabouts with that now, we have them all recruited they've all gone through their, their job specific training at the moment and then we have on-site training closer to the Games and I suppose all of that just shows us and overwhelms us with the way the people of Ireland have got behind these games, the support and the enthusiasm with which they have brought to the games. and. No matter what we wanted, there was always somebody there to help us. But it was funny, when we were awarded the Games, we were awarded the Games on on, the, on three things, really. The, the, the fact that the Irish government were so supportive, and they were, right down from the Taoiseach, hugely supportive. Uh, the strength of the Special Olympics Ireland programmes, one of the strongest programmes outside of the States. And the third, though, was the sense of volunteerism and community spirit that the Bidside team Felt and sensed when they came here on their visit for eight days. And that was really shown then when we went about um, organising the different programmes and the Games.
4: And when it's all over on the 29th of June, when everybody gets back on the planes and goes home or on the buses or on the trains, wherever they've come from, what do you hope will be left behind?
8: A huge legacy for people with a learning disability. That's what we really want to have left behind. That's the reason why we bid for the Games in the first place. Uh, yes of course it's a big sports event, the biggest multi-sport event in the world uh, in this year, but we wanted the Games to be more than that we wanted to be Games that would change attitudes about people with learning disability, that would break down barriers, uh, that would celebrate the equality and ability of people um, with a learning disability and the Special Olympics is about resilience it's about uh, courage, it's about strength and we want to show all of that uh, through the games and to really demonstrate to people uh, the abilities of people with a learning disability so that uh, they can be um, treated equally and take their place in the community exactly the same way as everybody else does. And why shouldn't they?
0: The windows of the world are covered with rain.
7: There must be something we can do.
0: Everybody knows Whenever rain appears It's really angel tears How long must they cry Let the sun
5: shine through
3: No level of effort is wasted. If all you do is give us one hour to come to an event, to cheer with your children, with your family, uh, you've made a contribution. It's the only movement where you can do something important while you have fun. Our invitation, our challenge from our athletes is to do something important and fun. Give us
7: an hour and you'll have the thanks of the world.